literally an institution in this town of digging up old photos, old stories, collections, everything you can imagine under the sun about this great city. Greasy spoons, dives, old clubs. If you love this city, you're going to love it even more. Real people, real stories, real places. This is the Austin Found Podcast. Welcome back to the show, and thank you, thank you, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Austin Found. I'm J.B. Hager. And I'm Michael Barnes. We're with Austin American Statesman and Austin 360, and we get to talk about Lyndon Bain Johnson again, which is a subject I enjoy. I know you have a long-term relationship, Michael, with that family and... uh and a lot of your historical research, obviously, with the, the library being right here at the University of Texas. We'll try to paint for you a picture of what a couple moments and what life might have been like here in Austin and the climate during the Vietnam War. Surely, and it, you wouldn't be surprised by this, but there were a lot of protests on the University of Texas campus at that time. That's right. And uh, the anti-war movement had been building during the 1960s and would culminate with a, a, a very big march to the Capitol in 1970. The campus was split just like the rest of the city. There were many people who were pro-Johnson, who felt it was unpatriotic to be against the war, who made themselves heard, and they paraded as well. But what we remember is the remarkable power of the anti-war movement, which was allied, let's not forget, with the pre-existing civil rights movement, the new women's lib movement, the new gay lib movement, the new green movement, labor. Although labor would become increasingly conservative, at this very moment, there was a sense of a, a, a new coalition. And in Austin, they were on the streets. Yeah, how much, and we're going to get to LBJ and another interesting family friend of theirs, but let's talk about campus life a little bit more. Was it spilling out into the streets as much as we've seen in modern times with with marches on Capitol, or was it more isolated to the campus? The early ones were near campus for the most part, or, or just on the edge of campus. It really hadn't moved downtown yet in the 60s. And the kind of things that you see in the streets in other cities, you just didn't see here. And we talked about that with the civil rights movement as well. We had no race riots here. That didn't mean we didn't have a lot of racial tension and uh, long-term racism. It just means that was not the way that Austinites expressed themselves. In fact, I would I hadn't thought this through before, but I would say definitely the the when the Black Lives Matter protests last year shut down I thirty five that was something new. That's not something I've witnessed before. Yes, there were protests during the you know the boat races at Aquafest that turned ugly, uh, and we have film of that. And yes, there were times when forces that went to go protest at the Capitol were at each other's throats. I remember there was a, a, a very out of place Klan rally that had 10 times as many people anti-Klan gathered around them. And there was thoughts that that could turn even uglier than it already was. But yeah, the protests that were born of debates 
and consciousness raising and speeches on campus began to move out into the streets. And from some of your descriptions about this, it sounds like it was more of a civil debate than it was out and out rage, which we deal with more in modern times. But there was an underground newspaper called The Rag. That's right. And then healthy debates happening on campus in more of a civil fashion than just people yelling from one side of the street to the other. With different sides represented on the stage, which you know, nowadays, people generally talk to their own constituency, to their own followers, and we get very little in the form of a really old-fashioned civil debate. This doesn't mean people weren't angry. It doesn't mean people w- weren't calling each other's names, uh, uh, you know, and I certainly remember that that time. You know, it uh, really broke up families. It broke up communities. Older people felt like, you know, there was the generation gap. And the older people felt like the young people disrespected those that had been veterans of World War II and Korea and so forth. And definitely the veterans and active soldiers in the Vietnam War. And given how much that was a part of the American identity for so long... The idea that you would disrespect them in any way was considered, well, communist. That's the main thing is that this was, you know, communists infiltrating our society. There's a figure that was very predominant on the university campus, a professor, David Edwards. That's right. It sounds like he grew up and and, and it was ingrained in his family to be anti-war. And so he spent his lifetime. Uh, being vocal about this on the campus, and he was very active during this time. That's right, and he's still around. He retired not long ago, but he grew up in a Quaker tradition, and he was, um, his parents were involved in the pacifist movement, and his uh, doctoral dissertation was about nuclear proliferation, I believe. And so he was a natural as a charismatic young professor to lead a lot of the discussions on campus about uh, the war and on the anti-war side of the table. And now this is uh, the part of the, the, the story that I, I really enjoyed, and that's talking about LBJ, President Lyndon Baines Johnson, who had family friends, you know, lifetime family friends, the Brooks family. Here you have President LBJ caught in one of the most difficult moments in American history. And the Brooks family had a son, Robert Brooks. And LBJ, and I I love this, he he reached out, and maybe you know how old Robert was at the time. 21. 21 21 years old. And just literally on a plane, wanted his to private time to pick his brain so that LBJ could better understand the youth and understand what was going on. I don't know if I did that justice, but that's, that was my takeaway. He wanted to talk to someone young that he knew, trusted, and had an open mind about what the kids want and why they're protesting and and what is the best solution. Yes. Robert Brooks went on to, to be a leader in the Episcopal church. I was a St. Ed student at the time. And he um, was accompanying his father, Max Brooks, who was an architect and family friend. And Robert Brooks, the kid, the young man, had grown up, you know, going to the ranch 
And even back then, you know, this was LBJ's political style, you know, young Robert, what do you think about the Federal Reserve? (laughs) (laughs) Trying to play in the pool. Um, But on this particular occasion that that Robert shared with me, which I was shocked that I got this good a story. I I was just doing a story on the Vietnam summit at the LBJ library and found the two perfect sources to represent the different sides of this debate. But anyway, Brooks was accompanying his father on Air Force One and Lyndon Johnson took him aside and sat him down at a table and talked to him for hours just asking, what are kids trying to tell me? What do they want? All those screaming, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? That is the atmosphere we're talking about. We're talking about a really divided society and LBJ who had been popular and powerful for a very long time, especially here in central Texas, just didn't get it. And of course it just tore him apart and he'd already been suffering from heart disease for years. He had a a near death heart attack in the fifties. So he had promised lady bird that he would not run again. And he had already said on March 31st, 1968, that he he would not run again. So by the time that he was talking to Robert, young Robert, on the plane on September 3rd, he was already no longer in the election. He just wanted to understand. Mm-hmm. He just wanted to know what kids were thinking and why they hated him so much. And another thing I learned from Mr. Brooks uh, is that the the thing that, that drove LBJ to escalate the war in Vietnam and not be able to back down from it was being hounded by the right wing during the 50s and early 60s, and even going back to the 40s about who lost China, who allowed the communists to get China. And this was a huge issue, which we forget today. But the Republicans ran for office for a few decades on anti-communism. And if If the communists, the Russians or the Chinese or anyone had a success, it was the Democrats' fault. And so he had to stand up in his mind to the communist takeover of Vietnam. This was a fatal, fatal uh, strategy. And so, yeah, uh, Brooks remained loyal to his president and who had been our congressman and our senator and had been our vice president. And later, Brooks got awards for helping to stop the war in Nicaragua. So he wasn't like a hawk, but he just felt very strongly that LBJ was trying to do the right thing. Mm. And uh, we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of the LBJ library, and there'll be more to talk about that. But I did want to get in one anecdote that when LBJ died in 73, his body laid in state at the rotunda in, 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 of the Capitol in Washington, but also at his library. And Lady Bird uh, and the daughters and their husbands were by the casket greeting thousands and thousands of people who shuffled past. You know, as it was described later, Although it was 1973, the 60s had not yet been played out, and many of the young and the long lines had marched against him in the streets. And this is the way Lady Bird remembered. One young man, very bearded, stood before her and just stoically and bowed slightly and said, 
my apologies. <laughs> and then she told him, it's all right. He wanted to change things too. That story can be found in volume two of Indelible Austin. Thank you. Thank you, Michael, for, for doing this uh, podcast with me every week. I appreciate it. You can write to us at mbarnes at statesman.com or jhager at statesman.com. And thanks for tuning in to Austin Found. Happy trails. Happy trails.